I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. We tend to think that... um you know, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that um, you can make that hasn't really been made before. But plastic, I think, is the lie to that. Plastic really is a thing that um, behaves like no other substance that has a lifespan on a geologic time scale rather than um, the time scales of any of our our, our living um, organisms, and which uh, cumulatively um, in the amounts that we've manufactured has changed the composition of our world. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Shortly before Alex Kleeman and I sat down to talk, the UN had released a terrifying report on the climate crisis, announcing that the changes to our global ecosystem are definitively humanity's doing, they're unprecedented, and some of them, like continued sea level rise, are already irreversible for centuries to millennia. The U.S. hadn't yet experienced Hurricane Ida, but it had been a rough summer of climate news. A section of the ocean was on fire for hours off the coast of Mexico. Fires were burning in the western U.S. so intensely that the air pollution made its way to the skies above New York. Portland was having a lethal heat wave and on and on. 
which all sounds a little uncannily like Alex's new novel, titled Something New Under the Sun, which is set in a version of the United States in which water has grown so scarce that it's a luxury commodity, especially in the West. Instead, people drink a clear manufactured liquid called water. The book is a stark and funny look at climate denialism, climate grief, and how people learn to, as she says, live alongside calamity. Alexandra Kleeman is also the author of Intimations, a short story collection, and the novel You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, which was a New York Times editor's choice. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker and The Paris Review. She's the winner of the Rome Prize and the Berlin Prize, and she is a delight to interview. Hope you enjoy. It's feeling great. It's feeling a little surreal because um, normally, you know, you spend so much time alone working on a book and um, feeling like that's the world that you're grounded in. And then coming out into the larger world is disorienting and a little destabilizing. And now, maybe even more so, because I think like you described, we spend a lot of time, um, even though we were near other people, also being in a a sort of state of reduced sociality and, and being able to be quite introverted and quite um, uh, kept to ourselves uh, for much longer than I normally would. So, um, yeah, it's exciting to reemerge into the world and find so many people there and have so many people to talk to about some of the environmental changes that we've witnessed really taking a upswing in the last couple of years. Um, and to hear from them also what they've experienced of it, like where they've seen forest fires near them, um, how they've experienced the temperatures changing, what their worries are about that. It, it's one of these things, um, because a lot of the book is about climate anxiety. I think that um, as with other anxieties that are believed to be personal and therefore slightly shameful, it's not the easiest thing to talk about with other people, that like you feel genuine sadness, genuine grief, and genuine worry over something that's happening in the environment around you. Um, it, it's the sort of thing that derails a casual conversation, you know, or that um, can threaten to knock a grocery store transaction off its um, axis. Um, right. So I think just to be talking about it in the open also is helping me feel a little bit more like my inner world matches my outer world. Something that I was surprised by was how much this novel that is set in an imagined future, like the world of that imagined future kind of resembles the world we're living in now where like the ocean is on fire somewhere and <sighs> we're getting these climate reports and, you know, we're, we're seeing major concerns about what, like that it is our world in a way. Mm. And I'm wondering if that, if, if the, the the material worlds that we live in when we're not writing caught up to you more than you thought it was going to Well, when you first started writing. Absolutely. I mean, when I first started writing this book, um, I was drawing a lot from childhood memories I had of living in the San Gabriel Valley and driving east back toward home and seeing these smaller wildfires breaking out in the hills around the highways um, and, and watching my parents just sort of casually drive past them, not even giving them a glance. So that seemed to me like a sort of omen of the future and something I wanted to dwell in and understand and build into the world that I was writing about. But 
by the time that I was finishing my draft, you know, I was in Colorado um, all summer long, and there were three of the biggest wildfires in the United States history all in one single summer. Um, the sun was red. Um, the air smelled like campfire all the time. And um, I really felt like uh, I, I was now surrounded by the sort of conditions that I've been trying to imagine and conjure for myself from watching videos, reading news reports, and thinking back on my past. This summer, um, when the book comes out, it's even more so, you know, um, not that the fires are bigger, but for whatever reason, they seem to be burning a little bit closer to um, where my family lives so that uh, I come out of the house and I can't see the mountains. The mountains have disappeared because the sky is all sort of one color. There's this um, invisible substance that's rendering other things invisible. Um, so you try to write a new future novel, that may be the hardest target to hit because the future is just coming at us so quickly. That touches on something else that I noticed about the book and that I know you've spoken about elsewhere, which is the question of whether or not this is a, you know, dystopian future book or whether it's realism mm -hmm. uh, or a version of realism. Um, and I think that something that felt so spooky to me when I was reading it was the extent to which I was struggling to categorize what kind of story this was. Yeah. <laughs> um, if this was a story that was, um, that was sort of contemporary and realist, or if it was as, you know, or if it was speculative as many of your, you know, a lot of your past writing has been sort of set in altered or slightly alternate realities. And I could, and I was having trouble not literally, like I understood that, the, that, you know, water doesn't exist and this is a slightly different world, but it felt a little bit like the veil was a little thinner on this one than I, than I was expecting. Absolutely. Like, um, and I think that that sort of confusion is one that, um, I, I want to use energetically for this book because there's something too neat and easy about our genre classifications now. I, I think particularly when um, what we think of as the real world is increasingly troubled and disrupted by things that we think of as belonging to another genre, um, like the, the genre of the dystopian or the genre of the post-apocalyptic. Like We have this way of thinking about um, natural catastrophes, for example, and I think pandemic falls into that. I think that um, uh, hurricanes, tsunamis, um, uh, fire vortexes all, all fall into that. I'm thinking that they are such unusual and exceptional boundary events that um, they shift the categorization of the story from um, realistic to um, abnormal to aberrant, right? Um, and push it into you know, for example, in films, then it shifts into an action movie. There's a different type of uh, character that's expected to navigate that second situation. And yet we're all characters from the domestic sphere, roughly navigating these situations that increasingly call on um, themes of survival um, and themes of adaptation uh, in this larger sort of planetary sense. So um, I think that 
it is sort of an uneasy blend of the two. And I hope that um, those sorts of genre blurring aspects will cause people to think more about what they think is real, what they think is um, a realistic uh, way to inhabit the planet and um, how they then make sense of the increasingly swift and dramatic changes that they see happening around them. Yeah, since we're we're talking about um, like big fast change and mm. uh, and realizations and also kind of blurred boundaries, I want to turn maybe more explicitly to the I guess the theme the theme of this this interview series and the prompt of this conversation, which is thresholds. And I was wondering if you had when you were sort of presented with the idea of coming on to talk about a threshold mm. that you've experienced or worked with that has then kind of made its way into your work. Did you have a first thought about um, what that might be in relation to this book mm. or just to, to your work in general? Yes. I mean, um, I think that one threshold that I've approached in a lot of my work in general is this um, boundary between the man-made and the natural, which um, mm. is... It feels so queer to us conceptually sometimes, um, but in especially our uh, Anthropocene <laughs> existence um, is increasingly blurred. So that um, uh, on the one hand, I remember taking a class when I was younger where uh, we were asked to look at a chair and talk about and discuss whether it was part of nature and obviously like in some sense all of its resources come from nature in another sense like there's nothing in the natural world as we think of the natural world that is of that shape of that function like um i'd say everything in um in so-called nature is multifunctional vastly 360 degrees multifunctional or um functional in and for itself, um, whereas a chair, you know, uh, is almost hilariously uh, one-dimensional <laughs> in what it's meant to do, um, but you can use it for other things. Um, at the same time, um, grouping these things into two different categories really neglects the way that uh, our lives are lived across and in circulation across that boundary, I think. So um, I often, in my previous work especially, used to work by um, juxtaposing something sort of um, comically man-made, something kind of um, pathetically man-made with something that was um, a supposedly more natural urge. And, and yet, these two things, you know, they intermingle within our lives, they intermingle within our bodies. Um, the sort of snack cakes that my characters were craving and, and occasionally eating in my first novel, you know, they're about as unnatural as a food product can be. Um, but at the same time, they are put into this um, body that is material, that is organic, and that has to find a way to um, work with and absorb um, these plasticky creations that we've made. Um, so it, the interplay between those two domains looks a little bit different in this new novel, but 
Um, I think that's because the novel pays a little more attention to the ways in which that boundary is artificial instead of like just pushing them up against each other and, and letting them clash. Um, in this book, there's sort of a realist storyline, a character-centered storyline that deals with things that we might recognize from our own lives, like wanting to achieve success in your job, wanting to repair your marriage, wanting to repair your marriage on your own terms rather than the other person's terms. Um, but all of these desires are always sort of um, jostled and displaced by uh, concerns from the outside environment that uh, unsettle and reorient an individual's priorities. So there's this constant tug between sort of thinking about yourself in a traditional um, self-oriented way and thinking about how to navigate the physical and environmental space of the world. Um, and I think that, you know, increasingly that is um, the way that we're going to be living at the intersection of two sort of conceptually difficult to reconcile planes. trace it back to is when I was a kid I moved so much we moved about 11 times I think you could say before I was 13 we moved from the east coast to the west and we moved um, uh, to Virginia I lived in Japan and all these things and it was disorienting sometimes to move um, after just a year in a place uh, I literally began having trouble recognizing faces at some point during it. And what seemed um, more like a constant presence was um, the landscape, like the similar features that carry from one landscape to another, kind of trees that compose the forest, all of these things. And I really became aware, I think, of um, uh, the fact that all of these built places, which were different in specific ways, were surrounded by um, this natural space that seemed, even though um, it shifted from one location to another, to be a little bit more permanent and a little bit manageable in some way. Um, at the same time, every place that I lived, while we were living there, I would watch one of these places I was attached to walking around or exploring after school get demolished. Like in, in um, one case, for example, demolished to make way for the first Barnes and Noble, the first bookstore in town. Um, and uh, once these places were put up and you looked at them, you saw um, they were new. Um, they were uh designed to fit that area, but they also seem to resemble all the other places like them. Like it was a, um, a samening of the world in some way for me. So, um, I became really ambivalently intrigued by, um, 
how the shape of the tree, for example, compares to the shape of a strip mall, like um, the sort of angles that we choose as, as people designing perhaps quickly. Um, and uh, the sort of both more resilient and more fragile shapes that surround um, them. So I think that that sort of interest, not necessarily with judgment, but interest in why um, uh, our natural surroundings look one way and our design preferences look another um, has always driven me to be alert about um, uh, the choices made with the built world and what those choices say about us. Yeah. Something I'm thinking about is just the increasing, I guess, what you're describing with the, the Barnes and Noble popping up is like the, the, the way that our sense of design or angles or how, you know, uh, will exerted visually and spatially and every, in other, every other way, it's like spreading, right? It, it spreads yes. and spreads and spreads into more and more and more natural places, um, which just resonates for me with the fact that in this book, the thing that is kind of at the center of it is that we have replaced water mm-hmm. with something of human design. Um, and it felt like one of the, I don't even know if it was a question of the book, but a question that sort of hovers near the beginning of the book is, can you possibly get away with that without it being catastrophic? You know, like, is it possible that design could, could reach so far um, and not have it be a disaster? Um, And, and of course it is, you know, like there, there may may be clues about that, but it's, it's such a, it's, there's so much that gets lost um, because of that, that, one overreach. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I think when thinking about water, what are um, the fake manufactured water that people are drinking? Um, I, I read a little bit about water in a chemical sense and a um, physical sense, but a lot of what I did to think through what this substance would be like and how people might um, um, organically market and buy and think about it um, had to do with reading about the history of plastic um, because as difficult as it is for me personally to imagine there was a time before any kind of plastic and when um, all of our uh, built objects had to be made from sort of uh, less pliant and um, less infinitely uh imaginable materials like things like wood ceramics things everything which had its own particular frailty built in um the title of the book comes from um the first advertising slogan for the first commercially available plastic which was cellophane which still had a sort of more organic origin in cellulose but uh we tend to think that um you know there's nothing new under the sun there's nothing that um, you can make that hasn't really been made before. But plastic, I think, gives the light of that. Plastic really is a thing that um, behaves like no other substance that has a lifespan on a geologic timescale rather than um, the timescales of any of our, our, our living um, 
microorganisms and which uh, cumulatively um, in the amounts that we've manufactured has changed the composition of our world, has not stayed in place, has um, entered our bodies and our cells, the ocean floor. You know, there was a study that showed that um, uh, microplastics are raining down in the Rocky Mountains and places that humans don't even go to, you know. So um, maybe it's, um, it's an interesting irony that when consciously designed to change the world, it's, it's a pretty difficult task, but in smaller short-term decisions, you know, in product-driven or market-driven decisions, it is possible to make something that attains a scale that utterly transforms the chemical composition of the entire planet. So um, water, water is something like that, um, that uh, our water system depends on circulation and on all of these um, currents and uh, uh, weather patterns that have existed for eons and now there will be sort of a foreign element um, intermingling with the regular water and all of those channels. Um, it's, you know, one of these genies you can't put back in the box or lamp, I suppose. <laughs> hmm. You touched on something else that I wanted to ask you about, which was the research you did for this book um, mm. that makes so much sense that you were reading about the history of plastics. Um, what other kind of research did you do for this book? What else were you reading or watching? Yeah, um, I read, um, well, I, I watched plenty of Hollywood films, like films about Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard and Chinatown, big name ones like that. Um, David Lynch, uh, Lots of David Lynch LA movies, so those were a little hard to metabolize. Um, <laughs> I read uh, because his style is just so completely his own, and the rules and logics of his stories, like um, uh, they're no one else's, you know, they're hard to absorb. Um, I read a lot of uh, sort of folklore um, from the Chumash people who lived in the same region that we now call LA, and um, in this area, you know, there were roughly like 180,000 native peoples along the sort of Southern California coast and going to the Interlands, which is just a, a vast civilization, especially in those days. Um, I read a lot of naturalist guides. There's a great series of California naturalist guides that all focuses on individual aspects of the environment, like grasses, fire, water, trees, um, and uh, I think just re reading um, naturalist guides or reading things that aren't meant to be consumed front to back, but are meant to sort of be pulled from was one of the most important things that I was able to do when I was not in California to keep my attention on um, the grain of the environment, you know, because it's, it's so easy to operate in this mode where you see an environment and you take in its contours and you feel like you've seen it, but to actually um, be able to dwell in the different parts of it, to 
spin your description out and extend it so that it captures, um, so that the prose is able to see at a more fine-grained level than the human eye usually does, I think. And, and so that um, things like one type of grass abutting another or um, the swaying of a, a, a bush or shrub is like an action in its own right, rather than something to be sort of um, contained within a larger, broader sentence about the color sort of overall of the place or the shape overall of the place. Um, I think, you know, as, as we talked about with your time hiking in um, Nevada outside of Las Vegas and my own time hiking during the pandemic, like I sort of want to recapture the grain of perception that you can have when you're um, when you're familiar with a place and then can begin to see more and more of it each time. Um, this sort of pace and time scale of a person on foot. <laughs> right. It's yeah. interesting because there is this there's this thing that's happening, which is, I, I suppose, exactly what you're describing, which is that the book is able to see something in the book is able to see the landscape with such intimacy and granularity and detail, though the characters moving on the page perhaps can't. Mm. And so there are two kinds of or maybe valences of, of knowledge of the land that that seem to be operating. And you can kind of as the reader feel the gap between yeah. say what the protagonist is able to see in the landscape and what there might be available for seeing in the landscape. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know if I'm expressing that well. No, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think you're so on point there um, that obviously I'm a human and I can't really see outside of my human scale, but in a text, you can work to make that, um, that line between what you can see, what you can notice and, and perceiving what you aren't seeing and noticing and perceiving visible, at least. You um, notice when we're leaving Patrick's perspective and we're um, in the space around him, seeing small movements and um, uh, taking in points of data that he isn't even aware of, you know. Uh, I think that I, for a long time, was more comfortable writing in the first person. Um, because it seemed uh, like the most honest way to root yourself in the world, um, uh, the most honest way to create the character um, by not even addressing sort of what is impossible for that character to know. But something I've come to love about the third person is the way that you can simulate pulling away from um, uh the point of view of all characters sort of in the narrative and um, simulate uh, going places that aren't even part of the story, I think. Um, and obviously, once you write about those places, they are part of the story. There's no way out of that sort of paradox, but um, that you can gesture toward um, the limits of the novel and what uh, is not and what cannot be contained even within a book that wants to try to um, wrap at all of it. Mm. Was there anything that you have missed or missed when you were working on this book about 
using the first person. It sounds like, <laughs> like, like moving away from that gave you, gave you a lot. Um, but I'm wondering if there's anything you missed. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that there's this wonderful intimacy that just is naturally created by being with the first person narrator, especially, um, if you enter that narration, you know, at the pace of speech, sort of like as though you're reading the words to yourself, like it, um, without a sense that you want to hurry it up or, or read the words as words, you read them as spoken language. And um, there's something hypnotic about that. It's um, almost like casting a spell. And uh, because I come from a cognitive science background where I used to do a lot of work on um, embodied cognition, I've always had this um, uh, belief that um, certain ways of writing in the first person um, that are sort of physical and embodied and that match um, the body described in the text to the body of the reader slash listener are really sort of profound ways of syncing a real body with a fictional body that that something happens there you really bodily um begin a bodily identification with um the figmentary person who's in the text and i i think that that is a really potent um way of making writing real to me um there's something disconcerting about the distance that a third person narrator operates at like I remember um, in a workshop I took at Breadloaf, there was a professor I had, Tony Nelson, um, who said there's basically no reason ever to write in the first person because everything you can do in the first person, you can do in the third. And when writing in the third, I do feel that, that it's so quick to move from place to place. You can go anywhere in a character's head that's um, sort of ontologically accessible <laughs> to to an entity. Um, you can... Uh, you can shift, you can move, you can string the contents of the person together in any way that you want. But I really do think the thing you don't have is that very mysterious one-to-one connection between a reader and a specific voice. Um, Yeah, so, you know, in my next project, I'm just thinking about these questions really actively because you'll have to choose one or um, at least decide which one you're going to choose at a given um, portion of the project. And um, I'm wrestling between feeling like um, I have a much faster and more powerful vehicle if I use third person, but that I have um, the skin to skin contact if I use first person. It's also really appealing to work with yeah that yeah that that metaphor is interesting of the first person as being like skin to skin contact yeah Um, that makes sense to me that that like sounds right in my ear based on (laughs) just my experience of reading first person fictional first person um there is something that feels so much closer um somehow and, yeah. and maybe does feel more like a vehicle for for me to be the eye or for me to imagine the eye in a more embodied way. Yes, you're um, invited, I think, like into a closer 
identification. And um, it feels it feels different, I think, from there are third person narrators, third person narratives that can close that distance, I think. Um, but it's a tricky thing to do. Uh, it, it's like almost creating, <clears throat> it's almost creating a third person narrator that um, it touches the characters in the same way as a voice projecting out would. <laughs> you know how else to put it. Mm. Yeah. That would be a good compromise. That would be a good hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious more about whether or not this 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 work on embodied cognition that you did, um, how it made its way into this book, which is mm -hmm. which felt to me so physical. Like there's a lot of physical discomfort, I mm -hmm. guess, and suffering in the book. Um, to an extent. And I just am curious how you how you thought about that um, body of knowledge that you have when you were when you're working on this? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think the connection between what I was interested in as a researcher and the cognitive sciences um, and my writing was clearer in the first book, because that was a very individual body centered book, like, um, right. or oranges were picked up, they were turned around in the hand, they, they were peeled step by step. Um, everything was arranged around a fictive body that was like, like the readers roughly. Um, and with this book, um, I'm sort of drawing from another area of research more, I'd say, like there's this theory in cognitive science of ecological cognition, which is not very popular <laughs> in some ways. Um, it's hard to instrumentalize it, but um, basically, whereas a lot of theories of perception and cognitive science have um, relied on coming up with explanations for how the brain turns a flat retinal image into the world that we experience, ecological cognition sort of sets that aside and goes, yeah, we um, know how to perceive that a wall is there because we have seen many walls before. We have walked toward them and around them, encountered them, physically we've touched them. And we know that when um, data presents itself to us, in a way that's similar to other walls we've encountered, but that just is a wall, a certain spatial distance from us, that um, we don't navigate a retinal image, we navigate a world, um, basically. And uh, it, in some ways, um, it adds this uh, irreducible, difficult to analyze element of of individual history and experience um, into, into the algorithm um, because it's true that, you know, the retinal, retinal image that hits your eye from a wall angled a certain way toward you could be the exact same um, computationally as the retinal image of a painting or photograph of a wall or something, but we can still tell the difference between some of 
um, these things. We can tell which one is an illusion and which one is real because we have experience with real things and the exact way that they should um, uh, move and change their appearance to us as we move our body around. Um, but there is something a little bit mysterious and ineffable, something supplied by the outside world in that theory that I like um, and that I think sort of fits how I experience the world more. So in the first book, bodies were wet. They were leaky. They were always touching each other and seeping into each other and changing one another. And in this book, um, it's a different sort of version of the body. It's a dry body. It's a body that's separate from other bodies, um, uh, at a distance from other bodies, for example, like the distance between Patrick and his wife, Allison, who's on the other side of, um, the country and who's talking to him on the phone. They never have a moment in the whole book where they have skin to skin contact, um, or where they even have, I think, really successful emotional contact voice to voice, you know? Right. And as a result, also, like, it's a, it's like kind of a sexless book, too, because it's like, um, I always think of sex as something that depends on, like, a watery medium um, <laughs> and, and actual contact, passage, exchange. And um, in this book, it's like figures in a landscape that never quite get close enough. Um, so I'm drawing a lot, too, on the way I describe landscapes. I think I describe them at length and at too great a length sometimes. Um, <laughs> But this is also because I want it really to feel like there is a vast distance out there and that um, when going to L.A., one of the things I perceive the most if I'm not in the car is how large the blocks are and how many um, blocks are between me and the place that I'm going. Blocks that you close so quickly in a car, but blocks that take a very long time to cover when you're on foot and when you're just a, a little body under the hot sun. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true about, about Los Angeles. And, like, and it's funny, I always, when I'm there, I'm like, why is nobody walk? Why does nobody walk here? This is so strange. And then you said about walking and the blocks, and it does feel like a totally different experience of, of walking in space. The spaces are somehow longer and definitely they're hotter and it's just a different, everything's built differently. Yeah. Um, and so the way that you're accustomed to to walking working doesn't work quite the same way there. Yeah, totally. Earlier you were talking about um you know, writing into climate anxiety and also writing into this fascination that's a longstanding fascination of yours with mm -hmm. the interaction between the the human-made world and the natural world. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if your understanding or your perspective on either of those things, climate grief or the kind of messy boundary between man-made and, and natural, changed through the writing of this book or alongside it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question. Um, on the one hand, I think writing about climate grief 
in this depth, I think, um, allowed me to inhabit that feeling and acknowledge it in a way that wasn't possible to me before. Um, and in that way, really turning my full attention to it as, um, uh, as I did in Allison's storyline, the part that's earlier in the mm-hmm. book, and then the chapter that's sort of devoted to her toward the end, um, gave me a chance to feel like, okay, I've expressed where I am right now. And that gives me um, space to be some other way afterwards, you know. Um, uh, also finding other people who feel a similar way and being able to talk about it with them makes the problem feel different, less like a problem of individual responsibility that should be fixed through therapy (laughs) and things like that, but um, more of a collective problem that can be fixed through community and through doing things as a larger organized entity. And I I think that that really is um, the plane on which this problem can best be addressed, um, not at the individual level, but at the level of groups and communities and um, local spaces. And of course, ideally, governmental <laughs> spaces at a more top-down sure. level. Yeah. But um, how is that? How is oh. that manifesting in your life right now? I, obviously, you're you've been moving around a lot, so community is probably a, a shifting thing for you. Yes, I mean. Um, I've been moving around a lot and the places that I've been in the past year, um, like my home state of Colorado and Boulder and um, in Rome, they've both been unusual places for me. Like they're not where my mail comes, if that makes sense. But mm-hmm. um, in my time there, I have seen how I could inhabit those spaces in a way that feels like it addresses climate grief and climate action in, in a deeper way. Like in, um, Colorado, I began working with this volunteer group that, uh, restores wild areas. So, um, they do trail maintenance or they, uh, gather native seeds or they reseed places that have experienced fire with the native seeds that they've gathered, or they, um, weed out invasive plants and, um, uh, uh, plant helpful plants in an area or water the plants that they've already planted. So sort of, um, thinking about what type of beneficial relationship we can have with our environment and how we can put some of um, this raw human energy that's often uh, put to passive or destructive use to something that um, can make a difference in your surroundings. I've also started working with um, XR Writers Rebel, where uh, we we work together to put on a um, climate read series at the Brooklyn public library and um, to have these conversations again and center them around literature as a way of, of getting at what's a little less convenient and less easy to just begin a conversation about has been really eye opening for me. Um, but I think the challenge is, you know, we're in an exceptional time and being uprooted and also um, in conditions where we have to keep apart from one another. Uh, but how can we begin something that um, creates groups and neutrality and, and possible avenues for 
action both now and when we are once again allowed to be close and be together freely. Um, so I think I have more ideas now than I did before. But even more than that, um, I have a sense of how much better I feel when I'm inhabiting my climate anxiety in this way than when I'm dealing with it as an individual person taking news in and outputting emotions to my my uh, partner or um, uh, whoever else is around. You know, I think that um, to me, so much of political conduct boils down to affect. You know, and um, mm. maintaining our affective ecology and maintaining a potential for action um, is actually a really important piece of the whole puzzle, I think, because to, to become totally drained um, does nothing for the thing that you want to work on. Whereas actually, um, I think going to a protest or going to a community organized around a, a specific problem, interacting with other people um, and doing something with them, whether it makes a large categorical difference or just a small difference actually refills your your banks <laughs> and makes you able to keep doing rather than um uh leaving you sort of drained and despairing so um it's affective hygiene it's something that enables you to do more about the things you care about and um i'm just trying to figure out what that looks like in my <laughs> home of Staten island <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.